This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Onyx Hunt. Today I'm joined by Scott Rawl, a Habitat Super Champion. You'll find out why Scott has invested nearly 40 years as a Pheasants Forever volunteer and the success stories that have come with it. Plus, we'll talk about his role with the Minnesota DNR doing roadside counts for pheasants, land acquisitions, killing cottonwoods, living life to the fullest, and so much more. It's hot outside, and now you can ride the heat wave of summer with hot sales at Waltons.com. Right now, they're holding their biggest summer sale ever, and it features your favorite Waltons branded grinders, mixers, and vacuum sealers. All non-stuffer equipment is running between 20 and 35% off, and the Waltons branded chamberless vacuum bags are up to 40% off. If you want to keep your food fresh with their chambered vac sealer right now it's 275 dollars off yeah you heard that right so get a jump on processing season now and save big time with walton's summer sale it's hot to order head over to waltons.com today Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. As always, is our producer sitting right next to me. Brandon, how are you doing on this fine summer day? I'm doing fantastic today. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm, yeah. do- I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Can you believe how many episodes we've put together? It's been so many episodes. <laughs> no, it's we're... been so many. I, I even lost count at this point. Do you know the exact number? I'm looking at the screen here. It says this is episode 127. 127. Yep. Wow. Add up, the, add up the minutes. The minutes, the hours, Jeez. the fun, the laughs, and the people that we've met along the way. That's what, you know, like a lot of times people, you know, they talk about uh, when when I talk to them about my job, you know, the, the things that always stand out to me are the places I've been and the people that I've met. And I am forever grateful for both of them. I mean, there's so much in life to enjoy and I'm grateful for these these travels and this job and, you know, like we're talking here and then the TV side of it, you know, I'm traveling. So, uh, both of it is, uh, something that both, both of these, um, outlets or, you know, like outlets well, works. Yeah. 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 Are, are things that I'm forever grateful for. And our guest today is actually somebody that I met years ago in the field, uh, in Southwest Minnesota in Nobles County. And I'm surprised it has taken me this long to have him on the podcast. So 127th episode goes to Scott Rawl. Scott, I appreciate you taking the time today. Welcome back home. I know you just uh, took a trip across South Dakota to the Black Hills and uh, spent some time up there with some friends. Um, You live in Nobles County, like I mentioned, uh, Southwest Minnesota, down in the far corner. Um, On your trip back, Scott, what did you see driving through South Dakota in terms of pheasant habitat, pheasants, birds, anything that stood out to you? Most direct route from Worthington, Minnesota out there is just a straight shot down Interstate 90. And so you're not going to, we're not catching lots of pheasant activity there. We saw some antelope on the way out, obviously lots and lots of prairie dogs. When we were up in, uh, in the hills themselves, we found a bird, I think it was called a tenninger, just a really super cool songbird. Um, ran across a few deer up there, but, but, uh, most of my pheasant sightings were actually, uh, last night we had a little bit of rain and went out for a drive at the right time and, and saw lots and lots of little pheasants out chasing around on the road, dry enough. So that was really cool. So, um, we'll dig into that. Well, let's just jump right into it right now. You, you do roadside pheasant counts for the Minnesota department of natural resources. What is it? Or can you explain how that works and when that starts and what you typically see? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And, and there are very few, quote, civilians, non-department personnel that actually get to do roadside counts. Almost all of the pheasant roadside counts in Minnesota are done by either area wildlife managers, assistant area wildlife managers, a lot of DNR conservation officers do those. They're mostly department people. I waited on a on the list for probably 20 years before uh, 
the current CEO in Nobles County got promoted and uh, took a different job and it opened it up and they offered it to me. And so I've been doing roadside counts now, I'm guessing 10 years. They consist of uh, three 25 mile routes that are driven at 10 miles an hour. They are exactly the same route every year. The only way that that would change is if there was road construction or you couldn't get through. Uh, the routes are driven at 10 miles an hour and they count all kinds of different things. You count pheasants. If you see a pheasant on the road, you jump out and try to flush the brood so you could count how many chicks that hen might have. Uh, and so you count adult singles, you count um, rooster singles, you count broods that you see, the number in the brood, approximately the age of those chicks, so you can kind of tell when the hatch took place. And they also count rabbits and morning doves, they count deer, and you record whether that's a buck or a doe or a doe and a fawn. Also, we look for Hungarian partridges. There's a spot on the form for sandhill cranes, which I've never seen one in. I've seen them here migrating through, but I've never counted one on a roadside count. And those are done the first couple weeks of August. You try to find conditions that are conducive. And so what that means is <clears throat> when the grass, when you got lots of dew on the ground and the grass is wet, those pheasants will take their brood to the road to dry off. And so you try to look for days that have dew. And last year, uh, Worthington, Southwest Minnesota was really dry. And I drove out at six o'clock in the morning or 530 in the morning. I was on my spot. They start right at sunrise. And I went out and I scuffed my feet through the grass and there was no moisture on my boots at all. And I turned around, got my truck, went back home. I did that for the first 10 days in August. I had zero dew. And we did manage to get some, a little bit of dew in the last five days of that reporting. So I did all three of those routes one day, one right after the other. And, you know, different routes have different like habitat types. Some of them I drive down, you know, that's where we live in a really intensive agricultural part of the state. You know, 10 miles of a, or 15 miles of a route might just be road ditches that have been hayed. Very common practice where I see nothing. And then other spots on each route, you might come by a WMA or come by some private lands habitat. And it's just about automatic. When, when you're driving around or near habitat, you're gonna see young birds. Most of the route doesn't really, you don't get an opportunity to see lots of, of pheasants in those areas, but there's probably four or five miles out of, out of the 25 miles on each route where I just expect to see birds. And, and so they then use that as a measure it's not a terribly accurate measure. That was one of my follow-up questions, but keep going. You know, because if conditions aren't exactly right, or if the only days that the route driver can get out are really windy, but it is a base data that they can compare against all the years. I think they've been doing pheasant roadside counts for like 40 years more. And so they can use it as an indicator of what a fall reproduction might look like or what hunter success might look like. And so I do it, it's, it's incredibly satisfying. Uh, I will say that, and I've been working on it, but the map they send you is, is uh, done by a GIS specialist, not a county plat book like I'm used to, but uh, I have managed to convert their, their, uh, their kind of their funky maps into a, into a plot on a, Plat book, and so I save that one plat book, and and uh, they mail out the data sheets. They're all you can do them electronically on your phone. As you can tell, hooking up this morning, I'm not a technological giant by any means. So I use the old clipboard and and legal size paper and a lead number two pencil and drive around. And it's beautiful to watch the sun come up. I always say, if people people that don't hunt or fish or spend time outdoors always miss the best part of the day, which is when the sun's coming up and when the sun's going down. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, that 
you know, so many people, they love the sunset. They love the sunset. And I do too. But there's something about a sunrise. Like you're, you're waking up with the sun during the day and so few people are up for it, especially during the summer, you know, five o'clock, five fifteen, depending how, what time of the year. I just, I have a sweet spot for the sunrise. I, I love it. Um, and I tell people that all the time, all the years of, um, being a fishing guide, you know, years ago, I spent so many mornings waking up before the sun and, and having people out and everyone would stop for just a moment, whatever we were doing, they would just look at it and just say, man, you know, and it's usually peaceful. It's usually quiet. There's not many people around. There's something special about the sunrise, whether you're hunting or fishing, like you said, um, back to the roadside counts now, now 10 years into it, do you feel like, you know, you mentioned that it's not a hundred percent accurate, but you're, you're feeling like, you know, the hunting season kind of mimics what the road roadside counts tell you or, or not necessarily. I would call it a, a spongy connection. Okay. You know, I've, I've done roadside counts where word numbers looked just awful. And, and we went out and had a really good season in Southwest Minnesota anyway. I think people put, you know, the, the DNR comes out with, a, with like a, a map of pheasant densities. And then all of the people that pheasant hunt in Minnesota, especially if you're an out of area pheasant hunter where you're going to drive to, a, you know, say from the metro from where you guys are at to Southwest Minnesota, they'll say, oh, the pheasant densities are the highest in Northern Murray County. And they go there. And so what happens is those areas that, that the pheasant density map shows is really good get more pressure. And so even if the pheasant numbers in other parts of the county or other parts of southwest Minnesota don't show as good, because there's a whole lot less people chasing them, I think your outcomes can actually be better. And so a lot of times if, I, if I'm going to go strike out in a, in a different county or go to a new place... I'll go to a spot where the, it says the pheasant density is the worst because I know that that will have had the least amount of hunting pressure in it. Hmm. And so I, it's not a, it, it no, I, I mean, maybe a 60, 40 connection. Gotcha. Um, based on what you've been seeing, like you mentioned, you were out last night watching some, some young ones running around on the road. How do you feel right now? I mean, I know you haven't done your roadside counts yet, but what is your gut telling you about our birds going into this hunting season this fall? I would, my response is dramatically better than last year. Uh, you know, I'm out doing conservation work on public lands all the time. We're, we're doing different work. And I saw broods that were, were moving out in front of my, my, uh, restoration vehicle, I drive a, a Polaris Ranger. And I was seeing uh, broods on virtually every outing, work outing that I had. And I can't say that I've seen that in the last couple of years, two, five years probably. We had really uh, timely rains that weren't really big and the weather didn't get cold. We didn't get any gully washers or anything. I actually think that that this season, and it's it's based on my own personal assessments, but you know, I'm trying to talk to everybody I can run into. There's people seeing a, a, a numbers of broods and the broods have actually been bigger. You know, one guy said he saw 12, a hen with 12 little ones. Wow. You know, normally I'd say that that number ranges six to eight. And so I think I, I'm confident that that Southwest Minnesota will have a, a pheasant season. I always rate them on a scale of one to 10. And we're, we're dramatically below uh, Minnesota's 10-year average and long-term average. And yet last year, I would have rated the pheasant season uh, based on my experience and most everybody else is probably an eight. Hmm. And I think reproduction this year is going to actually be better than that. I like to hear that. Everybody listening right now likes to hear that, especially if that this is your hunting zone. Um, you know, let's if if uh, if somebody's been a Pheasants Forever member, they've read the PF journal that comes out quarterly. They've watched the flush. They've seen you. They've they've heard your name. You're the super volunteer, the habitat champion. What are some other titles that have been thrown at you over the last 40 years, Scott? Well, I, uh, 
I'm referred to as the pheasant ambassador of Southwest Minnesota. That's probably my favorite. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Well, you, you've been uh, given the opportunity to host the Minnesota governor once again for the governor's pheasant opener, which... Kind of <clears throat> when that was announced, I'm like, gosh, I got I to call Scott um, <clears throat> just to say congratulations once again for that honor um, and achievement on, on your end. But uh, because there's so much into your story, um, almost 40 years, I believe, right? We were talking the other day and you said <clears throat> you're going to celebrate 40 years as a Pheasants Forever volunteer coming up in a few months is that or- no it's actually two years i oh i uh, i gotta live my life one day at a time but i have come to the conclusion that i absolutely want to live for two more years because i want to be able to say that i've been a pheasants forever volunteer for 40 years it's impressive what got you into it and why did you start in the first place you know i i was i come back from vocational school I went to Wilmer Area Vocational Technical Institute back in 80 and 81, got home and uh, was looking for something to do. Uh, actually went to a couple of other conservation organization meetings. And those were kind of, well, I would have called them more old school type setups. And, and uh, I Pheasants Forever uh, started in 82. Our chapter started in 84. I went to a meeting in 86 and, and it was just a fit. I, the people that were there were accommodating. I have a guy that you well know, Les Johnson, longtime friend of mine. He said, you know, I said, God, I really, I've never hunted pheasants with a dog. And he goes, I'll take you. And he took me out and uh, we hunted behind what he said was his worst dog. I thought it was one of, I thought it was a great dog, <laughs> but uh, I shot three times, missed it all three times. Thing was about 60 yards away. He pulls up his gun, drops the bird. Dog runs over and gets it. This is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and so hence my, 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 my camaraderie, kind of my connection to the guys that were running the chapter. And, and so we're, there's 750 chapters of Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever. And Nobles County Pheasants Forever is chapter 14. So you can tell we started right at the beginning of the organization. And we bought the first ever land acquisition. We bought a piece of property, donated it to the DNR, which was the first public hunting area acquired by any Pheasants Forever chapter of the United States. And so I said, you know, I had shot a bird. I said, God, I got to really, really, this was really fun. I want to do that. But down, you know, I used to fish like you did all the time because it didn't matter how fancy your boat was or how much money you had, you could go find a spot on a lake to fish. But when it came to hunting and there was virtually no private lands, pheasant habitat in Southwest Minnesota uh, in the early eighties, you had to know somebody or you had to rent a place or lease a spot. And so Pheasants Forever was in the land acquisition business. And I said, this is what I want to do. Well, I want to. I want to. I want to shoot birds, and that means I got to help find more places to do that. And so I, we, we stayed on in the chapter. I was just a regular guy, sold a lot of tickets, moved tables, set up banquets. You know, didn't really have any leadership role in that at all. Just a helper. 
and uh, had a few guys in the chapter that would take me pheasant hunting. And so 10 years later, in 96, I got my first uh, trained Labrador. Every other dog I'd ever had in my whole life was either a foo-foo dog <laughs> that sat on your lap or a, or a pet rescue from a humane society someplace. And, and uh, when my kid turned, my kid was about eight years old, my son, I have twins. And he said, Dad, you got to take me hunting. And I said, we're, we're hooked up in the right spot. And so in that, since that period, since 1986 to now, the chapter in Nobles County has acquired 43 different properties uh, that allow people who have no means, no, I shouldn't say that, people with means, without means, all now have an opportunity to go to really good quality habitat and have an opportunity to shoot a bird. And so when I joined, it was, I wanted to shoot stuff. And after we did that for a while and I had, I, now I have four dogs and, and uh, have had as many as five or six at one time. But I kind of got to the point where shooting a pheasant, that's pretty cool. I like it, but I've done that now. And so then all of a sudden I said, well, I got to go see this, this area wildlife manager. And we've only had about three of them, Perry Logring, and Wendy Kruger, and now Bill Shuna as our area wildlife manager. And I said, I'm going to go find out what grows pheasants. What, what show, teach me the habitat component of pheasants. Cause I always said, any grass, no matter how bad it is, will raise more pheasants than in row crop agriculture. But there's certainly habitat types that do way better. And so I then kind of switched from, from I really want to shoot a lot of stuff to I want to learn all about pheasants and, and, and their biology and their habitat needs. And so that kind of consumed me and motivated me for a really long time. Then all of a sudden this big, term pollinators pops up and we start looking at all the native flowers and all the other non-game species. And I got really engaged in that. And so I go out and I look at a, a native plant, it's called silver leaf scurf pea. And I said that to myself about 46 times, Bill Shuna says that's a silver leaf scurf pea. And three days later, I couldn't remember the name of it. <laughs> so I said, I gotta go do that more often than I'm doing it. And so we got into all kinds of of habitat and, and the construction of habitat and the non-game and, and bobolinks and brown thrashers and all of the other cool stuff that lives there. And so that, that really jazzed me up and still does. That's probably still one of my, my most motivating factors is to continue to try. I don't have a biology degree, never went to school for it, but really like to hang around smart people. And so I do my very best to be in the places where the smart people hang out so that I can ask questions and do things. And we did that. And, and, and that's still a really important deal. Then, you know, as time rolled on, my kid, my son's now 15 years old. He's hunting by himself. And I'm looking at all the people around there that, uh, that don't have anybody to take them or they don't have any place to go or they don't know how to go. And we started doing tons of mentoring and got, did a bunch of kids events. We did ladies only hunting events. And so that really became kind of a motivating factor for me. And so it just, it just evolved over time. I still, my favorite thing on earth is to, is to plant grass. My second favorite thing on earth is to remove barbed wire fence. And my third favorite thing, habitat thing on earth is to cut down cottonwood trees. <laughs> Killing they, cottonwoods. cottonwood trees. I knew you were going to get to that. <laughs> you know, and so... I, 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 the thing that I, I even somewhat have a hard time explaining myself is how after 38 years am I actually more driven to do conservation work and habitat work and pollinator work and kids engagement kind of work. I'm, I'm more passionate and more engaged in that now after 38 years than I've ever been, you know, and, and, and I don't have, I mean, I'm 61, so sooner or later, my body will probably break down and not allow me to do all the things I want to do. But, but I'm figuring I got at least 10 more good years in me to, to, to chase hard. And, and, you know, we volunteered between myself kind of organizing the events 
Last year in Nobles County, we volunteered 1,065 hours. Is that, that's, that's above a normal chapter by a long margin, isn't it? I would say it's probably a thousand hours above a normal chapter in a normal year. And, and is that, is that just because you're so personally motivated and driven or is it the team that you work with? What, what gets you there? It's absolutely, in my opinion, it's the organization. There are tons of people that care about habitat. They care about conservation, but they don't get themselves situated to go do it. And so we say, okay, on Earth Day, we, we, put, a, we put out a big kind of a, a Facebook splash and we, we said, on Earth Day, we're going to meet on this property and we're going to go do habitat work on that property. And I had, and it was a crusty day, it rained the day before. Um, it was Earth Day, it was, it was actually early in the habitat kind of habitat work season. And, but I had 15 people that showed up that day. We worked for 10 hours. How many cottonwoods did you kill? Not on that day. We killed zero cottonwoods. We went out. I had three older guys that went out and signed three new WMAs properties that pheasants forever had bought that had recently turned over to the state. And so we gave them a post ponder and some signs and, and uh, they went out and signed three new areas. And then the other 12 of us with with uh, a skid loader on tracks and two other tractors, we went out into a, a WMA that was, it's an old WMA, and it actually was an impoundment where they put in a water control structure and flooded this wetland basin. And they never removed the fence from before the impoundment. And so you'd be out hunting in these cattails in the wintertime, and right out in the middle of this cattail slough was a barbed wire fence. And it just tears up dogs. Yeah. And so uh, we went out. We got a whole bunch of people. We had cables and chains and, and, and went out and yanked all that fence out, yanked all the wire out. We, our biggest problem this year was that the ground was still froze. So it took a really big tractor to pull a T-post out of the ground. You just like driving tractors around and, and <laughs> equipment. I know it. <laughs> There's something to be said for that. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and so we worked really hard. Um, I was actually up, I think it was in Kennebec County, Kennebec uh, County. Yeah. And I saw a sign that says this WMA has been adopted by Kennebec County Pheasants Forever. And I looked over at one of my co-writers there who's a DNR employee says, well, why, why, why hasn't Nobles County adopted a WMA in Nobles County? We went back and looked at it. It was an old program started in 16, never really got off the ground. And I worked with my, my uh, compadre in the department and, I, and we, re, we reinvigorated that program. And then as, a, as an NGO or a non-government or a volunteer organization, call it what you want, you can then adopt a WMA. And there's a big checklist of all the things that you can do. You can pick up trash, you can fix signs, you can do this, this, and this. And, and so they sent me the, the contract, the DNR, you have to sign a contract. It's called the no fee contract. And there was about three things checked on. And I said, oh, this is just not going to work. I'm sorry, guys, but I, I can do better than picking up trash and fixing signs. I said, I need to be able to access these properties. I need to be able to apply chemicals. We need to apply. Uh, we need to have motorized equipment like chainsaws, et cetera, et cetera. So I sent it back. And it came back again, and there was a few more boxes checked. And I said, oh, come on, you know me. I've been around here forever. You know, you got to trust somebody. And so our history and our partnership with the department got us a no-fee contract with every box on the list checked as an as a activity that we could participate in. And Nobles County Pheasants Forever immediately adopted all of the WMAs in our county. And so when I, when I am not doing habitat work, I'm out driving around looking at public lands, looking for habitat work that needs to be done. And so last night we went out, we uh, were actually in the process of, you know, people, there's kind of a, an ongoing chant from the, from the legislative world that the 
the DNR doesn't take care of their properties that they have. I said, that's absolutely not true. We're out now. We've identified about 100 acres on three different sites where the cover has been kind of overtaken. It doesn't, it's not diverse cover. There's no flowers in it. And so we went out and we're, we're cutting the grass on them, spraying them. We're working them up, leveling them out, get rid of all the pocket gopher mounds. We're going to keep it black. And then in, on November 1st, we're, the department's going to partner with us and come down and do a frost seeding on those hundred acres. And so there was one spot last night that had three big evergreen trees, probably 15 feet tall that had grown up in the spot and the equipment, you know, couldn't function around those. So we went out last night, cut those off, put those in an appropriate spot. When we were done, I said, we got to go past this WMA. We're going to drive over here. We're going to look at the flowers on that one. And we're going to see how many trees that, that we tried to kill last year that didn't die on this one. And we went for probably a 15 mile ride with two helpers and we identified five more spots that need that need uh, management activity. And so we prioritize those. And uh, lots of times, you know, when, when it's a really good day to golf, it's a lot harder to get volunteers to go along <laughs> yeah. and cut down trees. Or if it's 85 degrees, then, it, you know, that's another deal. We don't do any of that work until after July 15th, until after the primary nesting season is over. So then it's go, go, go you know, from July 15th until October 15th till the season opens. And then we stop then because we don't want to interrupt anybody's uh, hunting opportunities. But there's any, anybody out there that wants to give, you know, there's, there's three, there's three kinds of givers. There's people with lots of money and no time. There's people with a medium amount of money and a little time. And then there's people that don't have that, that can't write a check for a thousand dollars to pheasants forever to be a life member, but they have time. And so you take the resources of the people with the funds, combine that with the energies of the people who have the time and you merge those three groups of, of conservation donors together. And you just go out and do conservation work just as, as much as you can. And, and we provide people an opportunity to do that. And when we put out the call, the response is overwhelming. Of the 15 people that came to my Earth Day, seven of them came, or five of them came out of the metro hmm. to come down and do a habitat project in Nobles County. Because they hunt down there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Gotcha. Do you and feel they, like, do you, do you feel like um, this is something that could be done uh, by other chapters in different counties? And, and the answer is yes. And it is being done by several other chapters in other counties. Um, but you don't have to be a Pheasants Forever chapter uh, to do it. We'll say that you're a, a 4-H group or you're a member of FFA or you have a, a, a church-related group of young people. Okay, Any of those people can go out and do this kind of work. I mean, it's not difficult. It's not terribly physically strenuous. And so... I think that that done properly, every single WMA in Minnesota could have an organization that adopted that WMA, and that could happen in three years. We could have the entire state blanketed with volunteers that will do that. They have to know how to do it. Or they, they need to be shown how to do it, and they need to, then need to be given an opportunity to go do it. And if you ask them, they're going to come. And so... Uh, we've done, we've had great success that we've, we have uh, multi-chapter days. Rock County, Rock County is the county next to Nobles County. And there's a guy on that chapter over there that's got about, he's got two sons that are about 25 or 30 years old. And he's got, they got about 25 buddies. And so when we get into a big uh project that requires lots of physical activity, we call Rock County and say, hey, can you round up those 10 or 12 young guys? You know, the average guy in my chapters is probably 60. We, we got a new vice president in Nobles County. We think he's awesome. He's a young guy and he's 48. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so uh, uh, but yes, I absolutely think it could be done everywhere. It, that, that program is now being reinvigorated. That is, I believe, it was a result 
of us seeing that sign up in Connecticut County or Kennebec County and coming home and saying, okay, why can't we do that here? And wanna, we started talking to the right people and away it went. I think you earlier said that you have acquired 43 properties. Is, is it 43 or is it 65? Because I think the other day when I was talking to you, you mentioned that you have 65 land acquisitions under your belt in your career right now. Well, yes. Okay. 43 of those have been as a result of my volunteer activities for Nobles County Pheasants Forever. Okay. The others have been, I actually have a little job, a side job that I operate as a contractor for Pheasants Forever. Okay. So when, when Pheasants Forever receives an appropriation from the Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council, then they use those dollars to go out and acquire public lands. I can't do that work. It's a, it's a pay job. Uh-huh. I do it because I love it, but, but it, I can't do that in Nobles County because it would, there would be an appearance of a conflict of interest. And so I do acquisition work for Pheasants Forever in other counties around Southwest Minnesota. Okay. And that's where the, that number changed. Okay. Because I've acquired other public lands, not in my County as a, as a contractor for Pheasants Forever, which I've done now, I think for probably five or six years. Gotcha. So can you explain how that typically comes about where the land comes from? Is it somebody who passes away? They don't have anyone to give the land to, or, you know, what's the process look like to take a private chunk of property, convert it into, uh, a, ultimately a WMA or whatever, whatever land it turns into. I could actually, and I'll be glad to tell that story. I could tell it in my sleep. It is, <laughs> I'm sure it's, you could. It's I'm just, sure you it's have just told it ingrained in me. It's just like <laughs> absorbed in me. Yeah. Um, sometimes you'll have a landowner that will actually contact a DNR area officer or area wildlife manager and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking I can't make any money farming on this property, you know, would the DNR be willing to buy it? That happens a fair amount. Um, I know that they just did a, a, a uh, study, uh, you know, when there's also some, some people that say, you know, the state's just buying up all the property. You know, the state turns down almost 90% of all the properties that are offered to them they, they turn down 90% of those because they don't meet the DNR's habitat mission, okay? So some people come to an area wildlife office and, and talk to those people. The, in Nobles County, and it's one of the reasons that, that I believe we're as successful as we are, is that we actually go out and search out high-quality properties that could be great habitat that are not currently for sale. I was driving down the road one morning on a, I, I do a, what I call a raw real tree road trip. <laughs> That's what my friend, friends uh, pointed as a raw real tree road trip. And we just get out in a truck and we just go drive around and, and tour public lands. And I was driving down the road and I saw a guy uh, that I knew on a lawnmower and he was mowing the road shoulder by his house in a lawnmower. And I stopped and I said, John, I said, he said, uh, Pheasants Forever had this, we were working on this one piece of property over and it kind of fell apart. And so we might have some funds available. I was wondering if you might be willing to sell us about 25 acres over here around an existing spot. And he says, no, I wouldn't do that. But he says, I, I, I might sell that one across the road over there. And I said, how much is that? How big is that? He goes, well, that's 110 acres. And I went, ooh, you know, my eyes went, my eyes opened a little bit big brighter. And uh, here I was, making an ask, you know, to, to do a round out at a WMA for 20 acres. And when we were done, we acquired that 110 acres, which wasn't actively for sale because I stopped and talked to a guy on a lawnmower. And I, those stories just go on and on and on and on. So you, you can either uncover them yourself or they'll come through an area office. And so the first thing that happens when, when a piece of property is considered for acquisition the area wildlife manager comes down and makes his own local assessment of that property. Okay. Some, some that I'll give you that are just guaranteed no's. If somebody says I'm, I bought 160 acres and there's 10 acres on the end of it that I can't farm. Would you buy the 10 acres? That answer is automatically no. Um, 
in order to be efficient in habitat management, it's a lot easier to work on, on one spot that's 160 acres than 10 spots that are each 16 acres. So small spots get kind of turned down right away. Um, if, that, if that 10 acres happens to adjoin an existing public land, that changes things, would, would put it up for consideration. But the area wildlife manager comes down, he, does, he takes a look at it and fills out what's called a, a wildlife acquisition fact sheet, wildlife information fact sheet called a WAIF. And then he, he says, yes, I like this or no, I don't. And if the and if the area wildlife manager kind of if he gets a no from them, a lot of times it doesn't go any further. But he fills out the wave, the wave. He sends it up to region in southwest Minnesota. That region is uh, run by a guy by the name of Dave Chauba. He's our region manager. He then looks at that and says, "Yep, we're this looks good. I like it." And then it moves on up to St. Paul to get a formal approval to move forward. So. If that property has got good wildlife potential, if it adds elements to existing WMAs that that existing WMA does not have. Back in the day, the, the Department of Natural Resources bought a wetland and it had a 10-foot ring of, of dirt around it and they, they would acquire that. Well, you're not raising any pheasants in a 10-acre wetland and you're not really even raising any waterfall because there's no upland component to that. And so if it matches their goals, their desires, it, it gets passed through region. We then, they do, uh, the partners get together, uh, DU and PF and DNR and, and um, Nature Conservancy is a part of that. And they say, okay, here's the list of projects we have that are, that are made the cut. And the ones that have the most wetland restoration work will go this way, you know, depending on which is the best fit for which of the, you know, for whatever organization. So they take that on. We then turn around. Um, I meet with a, with the landowner. We fill out a landowner disclosure form. Who owns it? How long have you owned it? You know, different. Is there any cemeteries on the property? They go, this is kind of an interesting list. Have you ever, right. have you ever manufactured meth on the property? I've never, I can't imagine anybody would ever answer that. Yes, even if they did. <laughs> but uh, so they fill that out and we order an appraisal. Um, under uh, current state law, the, the seller is notified of the appraisal. Then we tell them exactly what the appraisal was. They're, will, they're, they're more than uh, capable or, or available for them to go get their own appraisal if they want. And so we, we uh, make an offer. When that offer is either you know, accepted or denied, uh, I'd like to think my hit ratio, my close ratio is pretty good. And so he says, yep, I'm, I'm interested in doing that. So you use a letter of intent that just signs it's, it's 80 acres. It's about this much per acre. And at that point in time, we do a, a survey is completed so that we know exactly how many acres it is. When the survey is done, the survey gets reviewed uh, and a purchase agreement is then issued. They sign it. We do title work. Um, the, the Probably the biggest snafu that you have in, in title activity and, and sometimes if a seller has a defective title, uh, that could be many things. Uh, somebody that owned the property four times prior didn't transfer it correctly. So you got to go back and try to fix title issues. Um, sometimes you end up with a fence that's like 25 feet over into the neighbor. Hmm. And the neighbor says, well, 25 feet's mine. I've been farming that forever. Well, the, the survey line shows that it's not yours. And so you work through title issues. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a standard real estate transaction yep. at this point. Yep. Yep. And, and then, I've had. Then whose hands does it go into? Just to, I, I'm, I'm trying to, there's a lot more questions I have here. So I want to keep, keep us moving. Okay. You know, once it, once it's purchased, is it technically state property right away or is it Pheasants Forever property for the time being? It's Pheasants Forever owns it. Okay. Um, if the, if the property was purchased with a Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council grant, then the purchaser of the property has to complete the restoration before the property turns over to the state. So if there's seeding to be done, if there's ag areas that need to be worked, you know, reseeded to cover, um, I would say that on average, Pheasants Forever owns a piece of property 
from the time we close on it, probably 12 to 16 months is the normal turnover time where that property then gets turned over either to DNR or U.S. Fish. Hunting season is just around the corner, and that means it's time to start planning. If you're looking for a great bird hunting destination this fall, then I strongly recommend that you consider one of my favorite places to hunt. That's North Dakota. North Dakota is a bird hunter's paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day. And North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prey pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. Habitat on the landscape looks great, and I'm hearing reports of a strong hatch from their upland birds. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Start planning your fall hunt in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx maps always help you to know where you stand. So I, this is a conversation that came up multiple times in this podcast. Um, and it's because I, I see, um, I, I, I'm thinking about it from somebody that wants to help hunters that aren't members understand Pheasants Forever's role in where does the money go? You know, this is an exact um, explanation of where dollars are going, you know, so this effort, you know, you purchase this property, it gets turned over to the state and then it, there are signs on it that say, you know, Minnesota DNR wildlife management or WMA on it, but it doesn't necessarily say pheasants forever on it. Is that something that, um, do you can speak to or, um, as to why it, once it gets turned over that it doesn't, it doesn't have any relationship with pheasants forever on it. Well, it, and I, I think, I, I don't know the answer to that exactly, but I think the part of the reason for that is, is that in many acquisitions, even if it has a Lassard Sam's component to it, you might have 20 other organizations that all throw money at that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, one chapter threw in five grand and this sportsman's club threw in a thousand bucks. And pretty soon you need a sign that looks like a, a, <laughs> right, the, the right. backboard of a drive-in, right? A drive-in movie theater. And so in order for, for every person that contributed to get, to get to recognized, the signs just end up really big. And some okay. of those monuments do exist out there. And, and actually to somewhat answer my own question here, a couple of weeks ago, I had Matt Kaharski, the chair of Pheasants Forever's board of directors. And I brought that up to him. Um, it did strike a nerve with some of our listeners. Some of them reached out and said, I, I was very intrigued by that topic because um, it has influenced how I've 
donated to Pheasants Forever. When I found out that a property that I went to hunt, that I shot my first pheasant on, was something that was built by Pheasants Forever, it showed me where the dollars are going into the ground and had I can see it. When I see it, then I know that I can get behind that and therefore now I'm, you know, a life member or I'm going to spend a thousand dollars at the banquet this year because I know where that's going. And Matt's response, Matt Kaharski, when we talked about it, they want every dollar going back into the ground and not into signage because the cost of signs to maintain signs are so high. So I said, I pushed back one more time on just text to Matt. And I'm like, you have a very smart team. There has to be a way to, to make this known that when somebody that's not a member of Pheasants Forever shows up to a piece of property, they know that this property was built by the hands of Scott Rawl and his team of Nobles County Pheasants Forever members that worked really hard on it. And now this opportunity exists thanks to them and Pheasants Forever, the organization, and maybe it's Ducks Unlimited, and maybe it's the local sportsman's club. But there's note as to what what happened there so that people know who to thank and who's responsible for it. Otherwise, they show up and they think, yeah, this is a, this is, I bought this. This is my money. This is the DNR land, and I've my license dollars go to it. Because honestly, I think that's a mindset that a lot of people have. Well, and I can tell you that I, I can give you a, a glimpse of what you're looking for, Travis. We started back on Pheasant Run 1, and we routered a sign. It's, a, it's, it's just a, a, an old, it was a quite primitive sign at the time. And it says, Nobles County Pheasants Forever, Pheasant Run 1. And that sign is erected on Pheasant Run 1. And then we have erected a Pheasant Nobles County Pheasant Run sign, uh, which is two eight-foot-long two-by-twelves on two big posts, big, big, big engraved wood sign. Um, that's And each one of those pheasant runs gets recognition by everybody that steps on it from Nobles County. Now, part of the, I mean, we've done that s- since 1986. So I think we're kind of grandfathered in on that deal. I don't know that, that anybody that wanted to continue that or start that, I don't know exactly how that would work. But you, when you come down to Nobles County, which you, have, which you might do or should do, I will drive you around and I will show you. You already, you already have, Scott. Absolutely. You, you already have. I've walked some of the pheasant runs with you already. Yeah, but it's been a while. It you might have forgot. So you've got to refresh your memory. <laughs> but yeah. I can tell you that I could. you could come down here since you were here last time. Yeah. You could come down here and hunt for four days and couldn't touch all of the additional properties that we've acquired since you were here last. Dang. Well, then it's a, a reunion trip is in order. Let's I let's think. touch on you know the the all of the um, work that you've done has made a difference to a very important big picture item, which is your drinking water. What is Worthington's drinking water like right now in the heart of farm country? Well, the interesting thing that most people have the hardest time understanding is that in Southwest Minnesota, you know the land the state of Minnesota, for that matter, the land of 10,000 lakes, there's just water everywhere. And the answer is, is that in Nobles County, there isn't water hardly anywhere. We have about five, six wells that are about seven miles south of Worthington uh, in an area called Lake Bella. There was a, uh, a philanthropist that came through Worthington by the name of E.O. Olson. And when he died, he left the uh, a trust to work on water issues in in Worthington or the Worthington area, E.O. Olson Trust. And so his wife's name was Bella. They took that money, they went down and they they dammed up what would be the, the headwaters of the Ocheen River and they flooded back a floodplain and that's where Worthington's water supply comes from. And it's really strange because I think you only have to go back about three years and we couldn't run a garden hose in Worthington for the five years prior to that. That's how little water there was here. And so uh, we now have our local water supply. We have two other rural water systems. Lewis and Clark water comes from the Missouri River. We have Lincoln Pipestone water that comes from 
a big aquifer by Pipestone, which is 70 miles away. And those three sources combine now to provide Worthington's water supply. But I was talking to Scott Hain. He's our public utilities director, a great partner of Pheasants Forever. We've done a lot of great work with them. He said the local water supply is the only tap that nobody can shut off. All the other water that comes into Worthington is subject to an appropriation of water, which is subject to change. And so they have a super high desire to protect the local water supply that they control completely. And so we have partnered with them. We've gone down. We got a map that was made by the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency of all of the most highly vulnerable areas in our wellhead protection area that were vulnerable to pollution contamination. We have covered all of the highly vulnerable areas in our wellhead with, per, with perennial grasses. And so there's no chemical application. There's no manure application. Uh, the grass filters run off. Worthington's wells are, are surface water recharged, which means if we get a rain in about four days, the, the water in the wells will actually come up. So we know that our wells are incorporating lots of surface water. And by, by protecting the most, the most vulnerable areas in the wellhead, we have now moved on to areas that are moderately vulnerable. And when we get those covered, we're going to continue to do work down there. And so. All right, Scott, we, we lost you there. We lost the connection for just a second, but I, I want to pick it back up here. Your, um, your drinking water is, is now at a point where it's considered safe. Is that correct? Very much so. Uh, we, we operate off of three water sources. The local water source has no measurable nitrates in it. And uh, they credit that to the, the, the partnership of Worthington Public Utilities and Nobles County Pheasants Forever have, have covered all of the most highly vulnerable areas and many of the moderately vulnerable areas in the wellhead protection area with perennial grass cover that not only benefits clean water, but it gives people a place to hunt. It benefits pollinators. It benefits non-game species. It, it just... It's just a win-win for everybody. I, we're really proud of the, of the partnership that we have there and what we've been able to accomplish. Can I ask, you know, most people listening to this conversation right now, they get it. They understand pollinators and, and clean water and, and the effects that grass, native species of grass, a variety of grasses, they understand that. Most of our listeners do. But the people that aren't listening to this podcast, let's say the local farmers, what kind of a relationship, if I can ask this, I mean, it, you might not want to really discuss it, but sometimes when it comes to conservation and farming, like there can be two budding heads there. And you being such an advocate for conservation and this grass on the land, do you run into issues with local farmers that say, I'm farming that, that's my livelihood right there. I don't want to change anything that I'm doing. Well, and, and there are, you know, people that you can work with and people that you'll never be able to work with. One of the things that's happened in, in Nobles County is when we go out and look for properties, nine out of 10 of those properties are areas that most likely should have never been farmed to begin with. They're not productive. They're not profitable. There are exceptions where we're upland, you know, with a good upland habitat on a, around a wetland, you know, might be good farmland that we still acquire. But at the end of the day, there's a saying that you farm the best, you conserve the rest. And so we, we do tr strategically try to buy parcels that, that fit the habitat mission, taking into account our county board's uh, desires. And so a lot of stuff we're doing is riparian, you know, flood prone, flood prone areas, uh, additions to existing units. Well, and no one, I mean, the wellhead protection is just like an automatic. Everybody cares about that. But, you know, when, if, if I was dealing with what I would call a non-hunting non audience, that if I was talking to those people and say, you know, why sh here's why you should join Pheasants Forever. I was out the other night, and have you ever, are you familiar, Travis, with a bobolink? Yeah. Bobolink, one of the coolest prairie birds on the planet, man. They call him the upside down bird because he's light on the top and dark on the bottom. And that's almost exactly opposite of every other bird that flies. And I said, 
if it if it wasn't for the work that we did down here, where would that where would he be? Where could he be? And the answer is they just wouldn't. And so I take I took the garden club on a wildlife ride the other day. We got a whole bunch of rangers. This was a few years ago, and I took thirteen ladies out on onto pheasants forever's lands and showed them the flowers and the diversity that we did there. And if, if everybody knew or could somehow get a glimpse of of all the work that Pheasants Forever does, be that kids stuff, whether that's conservation education, uh, learning kids how to be safe with a gun, not, never been more important, uh, high school trap, uh, flood, uh, flood work, erosion work, habitat work, tourism benefits. If, if we could somehow get that message out to every soccer mom in the state of Minnesota, almost all of them would join Pheasants Forever. But it, that messaging, you're right, is difficult. People see, you know, people see us as a pheasant hunting organization. I would say last year we had a record number of sponsors that sponsored Nobles County Pheasants Forever at our banquet. And well over half, maybe 60% of those sponsors don't carry a gun, don't shoot anything. But they support all of the other array of things that we accomplish here. And so, and we spend most of our money on land acquisition, but we still do lots of other cool stuff. But they, they see the, the, the other benefits and then support us for those reasons. You know why they support it, though? Because you're the voice. You're, you're educating them. They understand because you're so passionate about it. You care so much about it. It comes through in everything you do. Everywhere you go, people can't help but be attached to good things because of what they've learned through you. So that's a testament to you. That's a testament to Les Johnson and everybody else on your Pheasants Forever team down there because you guys are kicking butt. And you mentioned something interesting the other day um, that at one point people didn't care so much about public lands because they hunted private lands. But now there's not a lot of private land, so people are gravitating towards public lands for hunting. Are you seeing that, you know, beyond just your reach in your, your area down there? I mean, is that statewide? Do you feel like, and well, is that Midwest you know, or nationwide? I'm guessing it's, it's, it's certainly a statewide thing, but when I have people come up to me on the street and say, you know, I, I never really thought about it, but it's, it's, I'm hunting almost all, all now on, on, Business Forever properties that you bought because my other spots have evaporated. I mean, people come up and share that with me. I mean, I don't, I don't try to draw that out of it. It's just something they, they say, oh, God, it was a really good thing you guys did what you did. You know, here's my 35 bucks, and, uh, and I'll help if I can. Because if it weren't for you guys, there would be nowhere to go. You know, you said something earlier uh, about the voice of Pheasants Forever or the voice of conservation in Nobles County. You know, I always, I, I do put my money where my mouth is because if you look at my forearm and I don't think you've seen it yet, but if you take the header off of the Pheasants Forever journal, that big type says Pheasants Forever across the top of the magazine and, uh, and look at my forearm, I have that tattoo right across the front of my forearm and right underneath it, it says, what will your legacy be? And I figured when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to try to leave the planet just a little bit better off than I found it. And, and that's a job that you can do from the day you start with Pheasants Forever until the day you can't do it anymore. So I'm done. I'm going to leave behind more than a tombstone. The trees that I planted and the work that I've done have made a difference here. I understand it's, in a, it's a postage stamp difference, but it's important. Very important. We'll leave it right there at that. Big thank you for all that you do on behalf of anybody that's ever hunted and walked a piece of the prairie that you have helped to bring back that maybe didn't know that you and your team were there busting your tails on a hot summer day, making it the paradise that it's become. So thank you. Thank you to Les. Thank you to everybody on your team. And uh, may we all strive to be as passionate and difference makers the way that you guys have. Um, I'm, I'm just going to leave it sit right there because you closed it up just, just perfectly, Scott. So once again, thank you. Uh, just want to let people know that our TV shows are still airing. They will be continuing to air for the next several months. This current season has taken us um, up on top of mountains, thrown me off of a horse, uh, excellent hunts, challenging hunts, 
uh, the, our entire team worked really hard to produce uh, TV shows on lands that a lot of us can go hunt, and we hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you continue to enjoy the rest of the season. Hunting season is just around the corner. We're going to be back out there in the field soon, and thanks to people like Scott, there's a lot of places that we can experience excellent opportunities. We hope that you'll take the time to bring somebody new out into the field and show them why it matters and why it can change their life. On behalf of Pheasants Forever, on behalf of our entire team here at The Flush, I'm Travis Frank. Thank you for listening to this Flush podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>